2 Thessalonians 3, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We'll trust God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. If you own a car, you are supposed to do regular preventative maintenance to keep your car running well. So you check your oil, you make sure the oil level isn't low, that it doesn't have any flecks of metal in it. You check your tire pressure to make sure your tires aren't low or the tread hasn't worn out so that your car won't break down. You want to keep your car running well. And if that awful little light, the check engine light, comes on, you do what? You take it to someone that can read that code and try to figure out what's wrong with my car. Same thing goes to your physical health. So doctors recommend go get your physical every year or every other year and do your annual checkup and they'll check your weight and your blood pressure and uh, do all sorts of tests. They might do blood work, ask you how you've been feeling. And if there's any areas of concern, if anything flags up, well, they might order further tests. Why? They want to figure out as much as humanly possible uh, what might be wrong with your body. They They want to pinpoint where... The problem lies in order to keep you healthy. They have an idea in mind of uh, the ideal, the healthy person, and they want to keep you in line with it best as they can. Well, when Paul writes his letters to the Thessalonians, he concludes both with a series of diagnostic tests, health checks on the health of the congregation. All of his letters end with some kind of exhortation, admonition, life of the church, how's the church doing. But these two letters do seem to focus particularly on the health and life of the congregation. 
If you remember when we ended the first letter, we talked about the state of the church. That's the angle we took on the last part of 1 Thessalonians. Well, the same attitude appears to be at work here. Not just general admonitions. This is how you live. This is how you obey. But rather matters that seem to affect the health of the church. Paul signals this in the very opening words of verse 1. As for other matters... Brothers and sisters. Now you'll notice as we go through the chapter, maybe you noticed when I read it, he talked about different things here. It's not just one matter. But the way he introduces it there, as for other matters, it seems that he's saying, okay, here's my final instructions. Here's the last things I'm going to talk about in this letter. And as we'll see, each topic touches on the health of the church. So this chapter provides us with Several marks of a healthy church. Doesn't give us an exhaustive list. We could go elsewhere for other marks of a healthy church. Paul says a lot in his letters about what makes a healthy church, but it does give us a partial list. And so it's another opportunity to assess the health of our congregation in the light of God's word. And so therefore, let us look together this morning at the marks of a healthy church. And this chapter offers us five, five such marks of a healthy church. I'll emphasize the first three, but we'll touch the last two quickly. But let's look at the the first one, which is healthy churches pray for the success of the gospel. Healthy churches pray for the success of the gospel. Notice how Paul opens this last chapter with a prayer request. Brothers and sisters, pray for us, verse 1, that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Paul again reflects on the, how the gospel came to this congregation. And he says, I want you to pray that it will have the same success among the unevangelized as it did with you. You remember when Paul first came to the Thessalonians, he preached among them and they received the gospel. They turned to God and now Paul says, I'm going to move on. I'm going to preach in other areas. Pray that I'll see the same success. He calls the gospel here the message of the Lord. That He's drawing on the Old Testament heritage there. The word of the Lord, God's word that came to the prophets and that they delivered to the people. Focus is here especially on the word of the Lord and the gospel. The message Paul proclaims that leads to the salvation of sinners and to the strengthening, the building up, the establishment of the churches. Paul asks prayer that it may spread rapidly and be honored. Those aren't just general words there. Paul's actually reflecting Psalm 147 where we read God sends his word to the earth and it runs like a messenger. In the next verses, the psalmist compares God's word to snow on the land and the irresistible winter weather that God sends. It's still beautiful now. It's going to be a nice week, but it will get cold eventually. Nothing we can do can change that. And Paul says, I want you to pray that the word of God will go forth as irresistibly as the weather that God sends on his creation. You pray it will do that. And he says, Thessalonians, remember, there was a time you didn't know God. None of us were born knowing God, but the scriptures came to you 
And you received it with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You received it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Those are Paul's comments from the first letter to the Thessalonians. That's how it was with them. That's how it is with all of us. None of us were born knowing God. Now, maybe we were brought up in the church, and so we heard the message from the earliest days. We were shaped in order to accept and embrace that message. But at some point, God's word did that. It produced faith in you. You owned that message for your own. Or maybe you weren't growing up. You didn't grow up in church. You came into church. You heard it, and you believed the gospel. Well, healthy churches will make it a priority to pray that God will continue to do this. He'll save, that he'll save the young people growing up in this church. That he'll save members of our families who don't know God. That he'll save people from our community. We ought to pray for that. And when we pray for it, by the way, we ought to pray with optimism. Why? Because we're praying for something that's rooted in God's word, the strength of God's power and his purpose to save. Now notice Paul also prays in verse 2 that we, that is Paul and his associates, may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. So he reminds them, pray that God's word will save unbelievers, verse 1, but but pray that God, through his providence, will restrain the evil actions of those who oppose the gospel, verse 2. I was reading this week of missionary families in East Asia, that there's a Mission to the World November prayer calendar. And I was reading of families in East Asia that have been kicked out of their country by hostile government forces. Those government leaders didn't know God, they don't know God, so they don't see value in the Christianity or church planners or even Christian workers, that they view that as a threat to their way of life. And so they oppose those who spread the gospel. And that's troubling, but if you read the book of Acts, and and well, this letter right here, we know that's nothing new, is it? The New Testament regularly documents opposition to the gospel from unbelievers, from people who are wicked or malevolent. They could be Jews or Gentiles, religious or governmental. But we pray that God delivers his messengers from that kind of... Of opposition, God just through his providence will restrain that kind of wickedness. What we saw in chapter 2. Or perhaps God by his mercy would even save those who would be in opposition. So Paul hopes for that. He says, I want you to pray for the success of the gospel among the unevangelized. But come into verses 3 and 4. Where Paul also expresses confidence in the success of the gospel among the Thessalonians. He says, but the Lord is faithful. Not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. And so because of that confidence, Paul himself prays, verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Do you hear the echo in those verses of the Lord's prayer? Jesus says, pray that you will not be led into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. And some translations render that, deliver us from the evil one. Paul seems to reflect that here, where he expresses confidence. God will protect you from the evil one. This is a church that had suffered hostility 
persecution. They had even allowed false teaching in their midst. And as we'll see in just a moment, uh, there were those who were disobedient, that they weren't responding to Paul's admonition to work hard, and they were in danger of discipline. So what I want you to see is, on the one hand, this was not a perfect church. This was a church with problems. And yet, despite the problems, what does Paul recognize? God is at work among you. You're obeying. I believe you'll continue to obey. I believe God will protect you from the evil one, that those internal and external disruptions will not lead to the end of the health of the church. And I'm confident in this. So that's something we as a church should give thanks for when troubling seasons like the past several months come, that God is pleased to hold us together to give us some sense of community and unity and fellowship and thanksgiving in him, and then to pray that that will continue. Because that's what healthy churches do. We pray for the success of the gospel, whether it's among the unevangelized or even within the church. So secondly, then, healthy churches value ministers who work hard. Healthy churches value ministers who work hard. Let me explain what I mean by that lingo in just a moment. But verses 6 through 15, let me just lead into the the big idea of these verses. Verses 6 to 15 constitute the heart of the chapter. This is really what the chapter is all about, what he talks about in verses 6 through 15. And the main idea is in verse 6 where Paul again addresses the idol among the congregation. Look at verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive, and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Now what you need to know is this is the third time Paul addresses this situation, which is why he gets as serious as he does. Notice in verse 10 he says, when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So in other words, when Paul first came to Thessalonica, this is part of what he taught them. Then, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, you may remember, he admonished some, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. So he spoke to it for a second time in his first letter. You may even remember that particular command was in the larger section dealing with how to love one another. Certain members of the community should show love towards others by working hard and no longer living in dependence upon the kindness of others. And then finally, third time, here in verses 6 through 16, Paul addresses the situation again, and it's the longer discussion of the two letters. So apparently the situation hadn't improved, and Paul has to give this third this most serious admonition to those who are disrupting the life of the church through their idleness. Now, let me just summarize the problem. We've touched on it, so a summary will do this morning. Notice he says there at the end of verse 6, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Verse 12 sheds a little more light. He tells people there, Settle down and earn the food you eat. In verse 10, an often quoted rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 
What do we conclude? Based on these words, it seems that certain members of the congregation were unwilling to work and to support themselves. And instead, they were living in dependence upon the provision of others. That, of course, left them with a lot of time on their hands. And so they were becoming busybodies, according to verse 11, meddling in affairs that did not concern them. And that behavior disrupted the church. So verse 6 says they are disruptive. They don't listen to Paul, and so they are disruptive to the life of the congregation. Now again, we, we've tried to add a little color to this situation by thinking about the historical background. You've heard me mention more than once now the patron-client relationship that structured many social relationships in the Greco-Roman Empire. Again, just a summary because we've touched on it before. But here's how one author describes it. In the patron-client relationship, clients depended on their rich patrons, receiving benefits from them such as food, money, and representation, while the patrons enjoyed the public honor that accrued to their account for having so many clients. And so these kinds of relationships would allow the dependents to receive ongoing sustenance from their benefactors. It freed them from the necessity of ongoing regular work, and Paul viewed this as a problem. We'll say why that is in just a moment. But what I want you to notice, interestingly... Before Paul goes into the strong admonition to the idol, he actually first speaks of his own example in this area. And so that's why I titled this point, Healthy Churches Value Ministers Who Work Hard. The emphasis in that statement isn't on value, as in, hey, you better appreciate this. It's rather, what qualities should congregations value in their ministers and their elders or even other spiritual leaders? Or or better yet, what are the qualities of a genuine pastor, a genuine elder, a genuine minister? And, And once again, we've actually encountered these ideas already in Paul's letter. So I just highlight what is emphasized right here. Paul says in verses, look at the end of verse seven and end of verse eight. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Essentially, Paul is saying, look, when I came to your town, I didn't utilize the patron-client relationship. I could have plugged into that social structure, but I didn't. Nor did I live in dependence upon the goodwill of the church. Now, why is that? Two reasons. One... It could create a possible conflict of interest. If Paul has come to tell the Thessalonians the most important truth they'll ever hear, the gospel, it has to be crystal clear that his message is not determined by anyone else's support or approval, whether that be, again, some kind of, uh, some kind of patron in society or even the goodwill of the church. He's got to make it clear, look, I, I'm not dependent upon that. And so my message doesn't have any strings attached. I'm telling you the truth. And the second reason then, it really ties in with the first one. The second reason is, if he accepted monetary support this quickly, and this is now especially from the church, if he accepted their gifts from day one, it might look like he was just in it for the money, which is something that philosophers in his day did. That that was a lot of the accusations against traveling philosophers. Hey, they believed they had the truth. 
But you had to pay for it if you wanted to hear the truth. Paul wants them to know, I didn't come, I'm not using truth for money. I came because I care about your souls. That matters more than anything else. And I want you to notice, as I say all this, Paul is not opposed to gifts in principle. Look at verse 10. He writes, we did this, that is, we worked hard, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And Paul there, he reiterates a principle he mentions in his other letters, namely, Christian ministers can receive financial support so that they, in turn, can devote themselves full-time to the work of the ministry. You tend to get better investment in the life of the congregation when the minister's free to do that. So the principle is true, that Paul and others could have accepted financial support. Paul didn't always take advantage of that, but, but he did affirm its legitimacy. But Paul is trying to say, I, I can't do that yet with you. Why? Again, I can't be in it for the money. There can't be any strings attached. And I need to set an example to you of hard work. Because this is actually going to be part of your Christian ethic and Christian obedience to God. That you should work hard. And that's where verse 10 comes in. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Paul views a willingness to work hard as an expression of Christian maturity. And in order to really convince the congregation of that reality, he first modeled hard work for them. And so that's why the, the first angle here is just in terms of ministers or, or other elders or other spiritual leaders. Just beware of those who don't work hard and, and value when they are characterized by a concern for the congregation. In other words, do you value a pastor who's super articulate or he's up on all the current trends or he's really impressive or just somebody who gets in the word and does the job of shepherding the congregation? That goes for the elders as well, those who care about your souls. Beware of a minister who seems to have other priorities in the ministry. Beware of those who are always trying to squeeze more benefits out of the congregation or watch out for those who would take advantage of the congregation. There is an other extreme, churches that might just chew up and burn out their ministers, be insensitive to their spiritual, uh, be insensitive to their needs, which this congregation doesn't do and I'm thankful for. But beware of those who just, here's what I'm getting at, beware of those who look like something drives them at the end of the day other than the spiritual health of the congregation. And when that's the priority, that is something to celebrate amongst those who lead. And Paul put that out there. But having put that out there, he then also turned to the congregation itself. So this is the third idea. Healthy churches encourage and admonish the idol to work hard. Healthy churches encourage and admonish the idol to work hard and, if necessary, they discipline them. So after reminding the Thessalonians of his own example, Paul returns to his admonition to the idol. He started it in verse 6. He takes it up again in verses 11 and 12. Listen to those. He says, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. 
basically, first point, Paul is saying, look, you idle, you need to get out of the patron-client relationship. You need to become self-sufficient. You need to learn how to earn your own living. And once again, why is he so opposed to this patron-client relationship? Again, conflict of interest. What do you do when your patron demands something from you that God forbids? Again, the patron gave and the client took, but the client had obligations back to the patron. He had to boost his honor. He had to support him in any kind of public causes. He had to give to him things that he might want in return for his benefaction. So what happens when he then wants something that you can't give in good conscience? Paul says better to sever that relationship before it tempts you to disobey God. That's one reason, conflict of interest. Furthermore, as Paul indicates in verse 11, those who are idle, they become busybodies. They, they, get, they disrupt the life of the congregation. They're not busy managing their own affairs, and so they try to manage other people's affairs, and this causes conflict. We could also add, Paul doesn't mention it right here, but I think it's beneath the surface, part of his Christian worldview, and it's definitely taught in the Word of God. And I think you'll find this an encouragement too. Another reason he opposes dependence is because part of the Christian's ordinary obedience is to work hard, is to be a diligent person. It's part of Christian maturity. God himself works. He expects his people to work as well. God worked six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He provides us with an example that we should follow of working hard for six days and resting on a seventh day, or the day that God has appointed for that rest and worship. And why? Why the emphasis on work? Because diligent work is a means by which we bring glory to God, And love our neighbor. So when you engage in a lawful calling, when when you do a job that God approves of, it's not just an end in itself, something to fill your life until you die. You're doing something that actually benefits others. You are engaging in an activity that at the end of the day will improve in some small way, whether seen or unseen, someone else's life. And by the way, if you're younger, that improves, that includes uh, preparing for a calling while you're in school. Doing well now so that you can do well towards others one day. And you see, that's a contrast, or do you see how that contrasts with the attitude of a dependent? When a person just receives things, what do they become fixated on? Their own satisfaction. And this just cuts against the whole grain of biblical ethics, which is always others-centered. I mean, God made Adam and Eve. They were in community. God made a world in which we were to relate well to one another, to work hard so that we might love one another. And so any kind of perpetual dependence gets a person fixated on themselves, and that just goes right against biblical ethics. Now, you at this point, you may be wondering, okay, well, that might be really hard on a certain group of people. After all, what about those who try to become self-sufficient, but they can't? So let's say a man or a woman tries to get a job. No one's hiring. Let's say a person is physically unable to work. Look again at Paul's language. The one who is unwilling to work 
shall not eat. What is Paul primarily concerned with? A person's willingness to work. Paul understands that in the providence of God, God may not actually provide an opportunity to work. But the actual language that Paul uses here is a willingness to work. And I would say this, when a person exhibits such an attitude, they're willing to work, they're willing to be involved, they're willing to use their life well for others and for the glory of God, and they try to do what they can, listen, you're not under Paul's censure. So if your age or your physical ability has made it where you cannot do what others do, you don't need to necessarily sink down into this awful guilt and feel like you're worthless. Don't go there. Paul is looking at what a person is willing to do, and are they actually doing what they are able. In fact, I would even say, in the case of those, it would be appropriate to help them. So again, Paul Paul doesn't approve of this patron-client relationship, but he did approve of charitable giving, especially among the Christian congregation. Verse 13 may even hint at it. I don't want to strain it too much. But when he says, and as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Maybe that's a hint at, look, these who are idle need to work hard. You who are working hard, keep it up. And don't stop doing good in terms of helping those who are genuinely in need. You need to help those who are in need and then try to move them, if possible, to self-sufficiency. So here's the question. What does the church do when a person refuses to submit to these kinds of instructions. Is this just an area of their private life that's for them to decide whether or not they do anything? That doesn't matter. No, verse 14 is sobering. It reads, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. And this isn't Paul moving on to another topic. It connects with verse 6. Notice again the very similar language, verse 6. Keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. Here Paul states, and this may be shocking to our ears, but Paul says an unwillingness to work constitutes a ground of church discipline. Those who will not obey Paul's instructions could be disfellowshipped by the church. Now, if you're wondering, well, why do you view this as church discipline? Look look at verse 15. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. I guess what I'm saying is there's, there's some extremes we could go to. One extreme would be to say, that's their business. Let's just hope it all works out in the end. No, Paul says it actually becomes a matter of spiritual oversight of the church. But the other extreme could be, okay, well, then you just totally shun them. I mean, look, Paul said, keep away. Don't associate with them. They try to speak to you, you know, throw up a hand. No, Paul says in verse 15, don't regard them as an enemy. Warn them as you would a fellow believer. So what's that mean? There is some kind of contact with this person. Contact where the goal is to restore them to the life of the church. So we read that then in the context of what Paul says in other places as well and say, okay, there's still a limited association. There is still some kind of fellowship because we have to correct this erring believer. We have to help this brother or sister grow and our goal is to restore them to the full fellowship of the church. So that's why we conclude when he says keep away and don't associate, he means that in terms of church discipline. 
There could be a limiting of the church fellowship. There could be a limiting of their, of, of their identification with the church, including taking the Lord's table and remaining on a membership role. So it's very serious what Paul says here in terms of this area of our obedience. But before I leave the point and conclude, do not miss, please do not miss, the spirit in which such correction should be offered. One more time, verse 15. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. When you correct people in this area, it is not so you can tell them off and be superior or get payback for something they did to you. I mean, we might come to this text and say, yes, thank you for loading that gun for me. I am ready uh, to put this into practice. No, Paul says... You do this because you genuinely care for their welfare. At the end of the day, you really care about their life and what it's doing to them. And you want to help them the way you would want someone to help you if you were in the same boat. It it calls to mind 1 Thessalonians 5.14 where Paul says, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Warn them. But what? Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. So let me give you these last two marks quickly and simply. The fourth one comes out of verse 17. Healthy churches submit to the authority of God's word. Paul says right there in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark of all my letters. Remember in chapter 2, they had gotten a letter supposedly from Paul and it had false teaching. Paul says, here's how you know my letters. I sign it at the very end with my own hand. Most letter writing in that world use a secretary. But at the end, Paul would take the pen and he would sign it with his own hand. In our context, it means this. Only follow biblical teaching in your beliefs about Christianity and what you believe about God and in how you obey him. Base it on the Bible alone. And by the way, not only base it on the Bible alone. I got a verse to go with this. Know your Bible well enough that someone can't dupe you with false teaching just because they make it look like it's from the Bible, okay? You, you, You can twist it in certain ways, but know how to evaluate teaching even when it's allegedly based on the Bible. And fifthly, finally, hear this encouragement. Healthy churches trust God's grace in all things. Paul concludes with two benedictions. Verse 16, Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with all of you. And verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Everything Paul says here about obedience, it's all going to be lived out through the centrality of God's grace. That's why Paul prayed as he did in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. I like how the NLT renders verse 5. May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. In other words, it's because God loved you and Christ persevered for you. Now you in turn can love God and persevere in Christ. None of us will ever obey these instructions perfectly. None of us will ever work hard enough. None of us will ever do it just right. There's one who did, that's Christ. 
He persevered to the end. And he purchased salvation, he purchased forgiveness, and now in him, we can be busy in serving him and in the calling he's given us. So let's pray to that end. Let's give thanks and pray together.